The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're going to do one more uh, study or lesson on the Mosaic Covenant. It'll be part three. Um, I just want to review very quickly some of the things that we've touched on because these are going to show up again, particularly when we get to the Deuteronomic Covenant. But the structure of the Mosaic Covenant is in a suzerain vassal treaty-like form. Uh, the historical prologue, first four verses, just reminds Israel of what God had done in bring, bringing them out of Egyptian bondage first and then down to Mount Sinai. Then the preamble is really the essence of the covenant. I want to read those verses again. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that was Israel's responsibility, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So obviously all the nations do belong to the Lord, but Israel is a special chosen people for a special purpose. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We talked about the significance of those phrases. There's stipulations that spell out what Israel's responsibilities are broadly in the, in the Ten Commandments and then through case law applying those Ten Commandments to various situations in life. There's a provision for reading the covenant just as a reminder to each new generation of what their responsibilities before the Lord were and, and what he had done for them. And then there are blessings and curses associated with the covenant. Now, if you, are, if you have slides printed out or if you're taking notes, you need to correct the reference there for blessings and curses. It was, I think, 23, 23, 23 before. 25 through 33 is the correct reference in that chapter that spells out those blessings and curses. Of course, we, we've looked at Leviticus 26 as a fuller explanation of those blessings and cursings, and we're going to see them again when we get to the Deuteronomic Covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Leviticus 26 is a great chapter just to read, summarizing God's relationship with Israel, what her responsibility was in keeping covenant with the Lord. Fundamentals of the law have uh, really explained that Israel is to have no other God besides the true God, Yahweh, and they're to keep his Sabbath and reverence his sanctuary. If they do that, there's these blessings that are spelled out for obedience. Prosperity in agriculture. Peace not only from their enemies, but also from wild beasts. Power over those enemies. Population in that they will be fruitful and multiply as a people. And provision, again, agriculturally, their crops will be so abundant that even before they finish the old, they'll be bringing in the new. And then perhaps most important, presence. God will be their God. Yahweh will be their God. And they will be his people. The curses for disobedience are just a flip of the flip side of the blessings. Instead of prosperity, there'll be debilitation and defeat by their enemies. There'll be drought. Now, recognize that the land of promise is very much dependent on rainfall that God sends in order for those crops to prosper. And he can withhold that. And that's what he threatens to do if they're disobedient. Instead of uh, elimination of wild beasts, there's devastation by those beasts. There's devastation by siege from their enemies. And the ultimate punishment, the ultimate curse for disobedience to covenant is being taken out of the land. As you read these accounts in Leviticus 26, go on to read it in Leviticus, or in Deuteronomy rather, chapter 30, it becomes clear that this is what's going to happen to them. They're not going to be obedient. They're end up, going to end up suffering these curses at God's hand and they're ultimately going to be taken out of the land. 
But even so, there's promises of restoration. Those are first stated here in Leviticus 26. They're stated again in Deuteronomy 30. And then virtually all of the latter prophets have promises of restoration for Israel. They're just picking up back on these covenant commitments that God makes very early on in his relationship with Israel. Okay, so we want to talk about, and again, this is really important for our study of all the covenants, how the Mosaic Covenant relates to the other covenants. We've talked a little bit about that with regard to the Abrahamic Covenant. It's really fascinating, and I think as we continue to work through the rest of the covenants, you'll see this even better. Mosaic Covenant, of course, was God's constitution for the nation of Israel. He redeemed them. He brought them down to Sinai. He entered into covenant with them as a people. So it was the, the document that regulated the relationship that he had with them. It was the means by which the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, would be fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant, of course, promised not only to Abraham himself, but to his descendants, that they would be blessed, that they would have their own piece of real estate, that they would multiply and become a great number of people. And the Mosaic Covenant, uh, particularly with regard to the land blessings, uh, filled out or the means by which the Abrahamic Covenant promises were fulfilled. The special priesthood of the sons of Aaron, remember that was established in Exodus 28.1 in the Mosaic Covenant, is later affirmed in the descendants of Phineas in the Priestly Covenant. Now it's going to be a couple of weeks before we look at the Priestly Covenant. It'll be next. Uh, that's in Numbers 25. It's a covenant that nobody pays any attention to. But it is an eternal covenant, just like the rest of these. And it does show up in the latter prophets. Um, but again, you see that relationship. Let me read Exodus 28.1. God says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother, Aaron's being the first priest, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So that was the line through which each one of the priests came. The Deuteronomic Covenant, and, and you might not always hear that kind of language if you're reading or listening to somebody talking about a covenant, but the book of Deuteronomy is in the same covenant format that we just looked at for the structure of the covenant in the book of Exodus. It is, in essence, a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with the new generation, remember, as part of their discipline, because of their lack of belief, God allowed them, uh, except for Joshua and Caleb, to die out in the wilderness. So there's a need as they get up to the plains of Moab, finally, and as they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land, Moses is about to die. He has one last shot to charge this people and to renew the covenant with them. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And we'll see that when we get to it, even a few more weeks down the road that it's basically a renewal of what's already been laid out in Exodus 19 through uh, 24. Okay, we've not gotten to the Davidic covenant yet. Uh, that'll be another one that's several weeks down the road. But the king provided for in the Davidic covenant was responsible to lead the people in keeping the Mosaic covenant. A very important responsibility he had. And this is anticipated even before they have a king even before they have judges. This is anticipated all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. 
When you enter the land which the Lord God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me. And it's disputed there, you know, why do they need a king like the nations that are around them? Uh, as you read uh, in, about that in other accounts, it doesn't sound like a good reason. After all, God is their king. They don't really need another king. They have priests to teach them the law. And a true theocracy, God would just be their king and they wouldn't need a human king. But we see that that's what's going to happen down the road. And, and God himself anticipates it here. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who's not your countryman. So that's the first qualification. They have to be a citizen of Israel. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Neither shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Where does that language show up again later in the, in the progress of Revelation? Exactly. Solomon violated every one of those things. I mean, Solomon had reached the height of his glory. Israel as a people had reached the height of their glory. And what did he do? He multiplied gold and silver. He multiplied horses. He multiplied foreign wives. Those are the very things that are laid out here that he wasn't supposed to do. But here comes the important part with regards to what we're looking at. It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, that is, of the book of Deuteronomy, in essence, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So he was supposed to read it first for himself so that he would know it, so that it would condition his heart, so that he would know God and worship him appropriately, and then he was supposed to use it to lead the rest of the country, that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen and that, he might, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. <clears throat> okay, one more. What's the last covenant that we'll look at in our study? New covenant. New covenant is in Jeremiah 31. It too is very closely linked to the Mosaic Covenant. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I'd made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's obviously a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which, with I, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Uh, the Hebrew word there is Torah. What law is he talking about? He's talking about the law of the Mosaic Covenant. And on their heart I will write it. Now before, how had it been written? On tablets of stone. And how had Israel done, particularly by the time you get to the time of Jeremiah, in keeping it as it was written on tablets of stone? Terribly. The difference in the new covenant is it's not just written as an external law code. It's written on their hearts. Their hearts have been changed. The law has been internalized. 
their inclination at that point, and this is still future to us today, is to obey God, to keep his law in a way that they've not before done in their history. I'll put my law with them, and them on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Where does that come from? It comes from the Mosaic Covenant. So the New Covenant is not absolutely new, but it is, I think the best way to say it, a new enablement for Israel to obey the very things that God set out in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I think that will become more clear uh, in our lesson later. So we've asked this question before. I think it's a no-brainer. Are we as Christians under the Mosaic Law? And, and if not, why not? I'm giving away the answer there. <clears throat> no, we're not. Now, some people will say, well, the Ten Commandments are still pretty good things. We post them in schools sometimes. <coughs> Probably not anymore. They used to. Uh, aren't we still under the Ten Commandments? And our answer to that is you can't divvy up the law that way. People will say, yeah, we're under the Ten Commandments. It's the moral law of God, but we don't have to do the ceremonial part or of the law anymore. Uh, I understand seeing some distinction in the law that way, but if you're either under the law as a system of life, which Israel was, they couldn't divvy up the law and say, yeah, we want to be under this part. We don't want to be under that. You have to be under it all, or you're not under it at all. Now, there is a moral law that existed even before the law was given at Sinai, right? By virtue of the fact that man is made in the image of God, he knows right from wrong. Uh, when Cain killed Abel, he didn't have the law given to him. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And a lot of the Ten Commandments is just codifying that moral law. So in that sense, yeah, we... We still have a moral law before God that we're responsible for. And people will make the point that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament anyway. So I understand that, but I just want you to understand that you can't say, you can't be under part of the law. Uh, you're either under all of it or, or not. The New Testament is very clear that the Christian, the believer in Christ, uh, the member of the church age is not under the Mosaic law. That was the issue that was decided in Acts 15. Now, I don't think there's a better way to do this. It's a pretty long section, but I want to read it and just make some comments along the way. <clears throat> Why? What was the issue? Was, let me ask you it this way. Was it logical for the people that were coming to faith in Israel's Messiah for the people of Israel to say, hey, they're taking our Messiah. They need to come under our law. Had that happened before? Yeah, the Gentile proselytes in the Old Testament could, could acknowledge that Israel's God was the true God. They could join themselves to the house of Israel, and they were responsible to keep the law at least as much as they could as Gentiles. So we get to this point in Acts 15. Remember, this is after Acts 10 where Peter's already been to the house of Cornelius. He's already seen this vision of the three sheets, or the three times that the sheet comes down with all these unclean animals. He's commanded to arise, kill, and eat. He refuses to do it. But it's a lesson to him by God that what God declares clean no longer consider unclean. And he's speaking with particular reference to the Gentiles. 
So you've got Gentiles who are coming to faith, and they're not, it hasn't been decided yet whether they have to keep the law. So Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and, and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty serious thing. But again, you can understand why they would say that, right? Um, we're, we're at a point in the progress of revelation and the progress of redemption where it's not been clear that we're, the church is not under the law. Circumcision would be the first point. That's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's, a, it's kind of a commitment to keep that covenant. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with these men that came down from Judea, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So you see what's happening is the leadership is getting together and say, hey, we need to hash this out. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing, passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in de detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Paul was a... He was a master at being efficient in his travels. You know, you look at his missionary journeys, anytime he extended and went further to a new place, he would go visit the churches that had already been established first, and then he would come back through and visit churches that had been established. Here they're making use of the trip to uh, tell others about the conversion of the Gentiles. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all that God had done with them, but certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. That's an interesting point. There were Pharisees that had believed. They don't, get, they don't sound very good in the gospel accounts, but certain of them had come to recognize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. These stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter is speaking about the fact that, at least in this case, he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We know that Paul takes that role later. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Peter had witnessed that when he was there at Cornelius' house. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, we don't really have time to explore all the implications of that. It does sound like that the law, at least by that time, had become a burden to them, something they had very great difficulty with. But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. And all the multitude kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with, the, with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, after these things, I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. In order that the rest of mankind, not just Israel, but the rest of mankind, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old, therefore it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And when he says, don't trouble them, don't make them keep the law. 
but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So there are four requirements that they have to keep, but they're not coming under the, the Mosaic law code as a rule of life. He goes on to say, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him. Uh, Moses' law is going to continue to be expounded, particularly to Jewish believers, and there's nothing wrong with Jewish believers continuing to keep the law, but the decision is made at this point that the Gentiles don't come under that law code. And then we see that same principle affirmed in the epistles. Paul says, sin shall not be master of you, for you're not under law, but under grace. He's talking about not being under the Mosaic law there. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, Galatians 5.18. And the implication there is if you are a believer, a genuine converted believer, you are led by the Spirit and therefore not under the law. Now this is Paul himself speaking, and he does continue to keep the law when it's beneficial for him to do so. He's in a unique position as the apostle to the Gentiles, but also as a Jew. Remember, the law was given as we've seen, uh, as God's law. It was given to the nation of Israel for their benefit. Uh, it wasn't this tremendous burden. I don't think it was given to show them that they couldn't keep it. It was divine revelation from God to regulate the relationship that they had with him as his people. And Paul says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew, as a Jew, of course he is a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself, not being myself, under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, Gentiles, as without law, law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. We know about from James. That I might win those who are without law. So, Again, there's nothing wrong with a Jew keeping the law. Paul continued to keep the law. We see that later in the book of Acts where James recognizes uh, that the Jewish people are saying, hey, this guy Paul, he's going around and telling all these Jews not to keep the custom of Moses, not to keep the law. Paul hadn't been doing that. And as a way of proving that, he has Paul go down and offer sacrifice at the temple and uh, prove that he too walks orderly keeping the law. So let's think about let's say then by the time we get to the New Testament period and by the time that Christ has come and died for sin, what was the purpose of the Mosaic Law? What do you think? And actually there are multiple purposes for it, but what would you say was any of those? To show how to worship, show the nation of Israel how to worship. I mean, it was spelled out by God himself. What else does law do generally? I learned from you the conditions are hard. Okay. And a lot of people want to talk about, you know, this contrast between law and grace and that there was law in the Old Testament, grace in the New, and somehow that the law was given as an external means of righteousness. I... I think if you go back and read the Old Testament accounts carefully, it was given to condition the heart. Even thou shalt not covet, it's clear that that was meant to condition the heart, but there's also commandments not to hate your brother. So it wasn't just an external thing, and it shouldn't be contrasted with grace. There was grace in the Old Testament, there's law in the New Testament. What else does 
specific stipulations do in law in general and in the Mosaic Covenant in particular? Right, what's right conduct and what's not exactly it defines sin so we sin existed before law came but when you have a law code that spells out what's right and wrong it more clearly defines sin okay good so to reveal man's sinfulness romans 3:19. now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to god because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Obviously, the law was not, as we've said before, not intended to be the means of salvation. Nobody can say, hey, Lord, I've kept all these commandments. I've earned your favor. It just doesn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way for the nation of Israel. God chose them quite apart from their uh, status or their obedience. He chose them first brought them out of Egypt, he showed his love and grace towards them, and then he gave them the law. Right. Yes? Didn't people think that? Like yes. The Pharisees and yep. the rich young ruler? Yep, absolutely. It's a good point. By the time you get to the New Testament period, they were, I think the Pharisees would be the leaders of this movement. They were thinking, yes, we're righteous because we keep God's law, and we earn God's favor that way. And they took what was a good gift from God in the sense of their receiving the law and looked down on the Gentile nations because they had that. And that was wrong. There's a danger in that. There's definitely a danger in it. We can be prone to that as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that it helps explain part of what's said in Acts 15 is that the law had become a burden uh, by the New Testament time, largely because the Pharisees had added all these other things on top of the true law given by God. I don't think it was a burden to the Old Testament saint who really believed in Yahweh and wanted to please him the same way that the New Testament commandments we shouldn't consider a burden either. Well, the law shows his holiness too, it, and when we embrace that, yep. I think it all fits into place. Absolutely. It's another purpose of the law is to reveal God's character, and it's one that we continue to benefit from today. Even though we're not under the law, we can still benefit, certainly, from studying the law and and reading it. It not only reveals man's sinfulness, it reveals the hideous nature of sin. And Paul talks about this in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No. The law is perfect. It's revealed from God himself. May it never be, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. He's, he's speaking of sin here as almost an animate thing, an active thing that takes advantage of law. Taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Isaiah, I'm tempted to use you as an example here. Is that going to embarrass you? <laughs> Somebody related to me about Isaiah uh, telling this per particular person that uh, whenever he was told he couldn't do something, he just wanted to do it. Is that right? Is that a fair? <laughs> You've experienced that, right? When you see the tag on the mattress that says, do not remove under penalty of law, you just rip that thing off. But more uh, stronger than that, you know, we have certain commandments and it provokes in us 
appeals to our sin nature to rebel against the commandment. And even Paul is saying that here. Covenant, you know, the, the command not to covet produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Not absolutely dead, but not as clearly defined and not provoked the way that law does. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, that was the purpose for which law was given, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunities through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good because become a cause of death for me. May it never be. You can see what Paul's doing here. He's kind of proposing what uh, an opponent would say, and he's saying, no, no, that's not right. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandments, sin might be become utterly sinful. All that to say is that the law shows how sinful sin is. I can say it that way. The law also served to act as a tutor until Christ. Now, again, people will say, yeah, it was given to show the people they couldn't keep it and basically to drive them to Christ. I don't think that's what Paul's saying in Galatians 3.23, but it, there's certainly the idea of teaching and maturing a whole nation of people until a certain time where it was fulfilled and Christ came and he did what he was supposed to do. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. Before faith came, and, and we're talking about faith in Christ in particular, we were kept in custody under the law. I think when he says we here, he's talking about the Jewish people in particular, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our teacher, our pedagogue, to lead us to or until Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Pat said earlier, the law reveals the holiness of God. It also serves to restrain wrongdoing. Again, law has the effect of provoking sin, but it also clearly defines what we're to do and not to do. And so it protects the moral, social, and religious institutions of Israel. So the question then becomes, if the church is not under the law, has the Mosaic Covenant been abolished? And my guess is that you're going to anticipate my answer, at least. I, I think not. People will argue, yes, it has been abolished on the basis of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8 in particular, and verse 13 even more particularly. Verse 13 says, when he said, that is when God said, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, I think if you just take that verse in isolation, you might be able to make the case, but Hebrews has an argument as well. And the argument of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ to all that has come before. Chapters 1 and 2 make the case that he's superior to angels. Chapter 3 makes the case that he's superior to Moses. Chapter 4 through 10 make the argument that he's superior to the sons of Aaron as a priest. And certainly there has been a change in the law 
and particularly with regard to the priesthood. And that's part of the argument of Hebrews as well. Christ is not part of the tribe of Levi. He's not descended from Aaron. So how can he be a priest? Well, he has a different kind of priesthood. Um, and that's a big part of the argument of Hebrews as well. Christ is indeed the mediator of a better covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary. He's rendered a superior sacrifice to anything that the law can offer. But the point of the book of Hebrews is that you've got these Jewish Christians, or at least professing Christians, who have seen all of this. They've seen the power of the ages to come. They've tasted the Holy Spirit. They've experienced Christian community in the church. And they've also experienced persecution and difficulty at the hands of their own countrymen. And they're considering going back to what they were before they became followers of Christ. They would still consider themselves as God's people. They're still part of the nation of Israel. But what are they doing at that point? They're walking away from Christ and joining forces with the very people that are persecuting followers of Christ. And that's the significance of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now that Christ has come, you can't act as if he's not come, and you can't have embraced him and then gone back. That's the worst place to be that you can be. You have more accountability in that way than you would if you'd never embraced the gospel in the first place. So I personally don't believe that it's fair to say that the Mosaic Covenant has been done away with. Now, I believe Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and God in his providence and plan uh, made it virtually impossible to keep the law, right, once he destroyed the temple. But Israel's still under the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, and that covenant still remains in place, even though Christ has already come and cut the new covenant, or at least made the necessary sacrifice to establish it, it's not enforced for the nation of Israel, and that's who it's made with. So consider the Mosaic Covenant and the character of the kingdom as described in the latter prophets. Now, when I talk about latter prophets, I want you to think through uh, the way the Old Testament is laid out, right? You've got the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses that establish these covenants and that lay out the law. You've got... Um, Moses as the leader of the, of the nation, and then Joshua, and then the period of the judges. From the judges, you move into the period of the kings who are measured by how well they follow the example of King David and walk in the ways of the law. And then you've got uh, the, what, the former prophets and what we would call the historical books in our Bible that really lay out the way the nation of Israel acts through First and Second Kings. And and the end of Second Kings, you've got first Israel being taken into captivity and then Judah. Well, the prophets are situated in there during that period of time. And as we've said before, they're calling the nation back to covenant faithfulness, which they haven't been very faithful. But they're also looking forward to a day uh, after the exile when Israel will be restored. That, again, goes back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. But... It's those portions of the latter prophets that to me are just fascinating and that make me say that the Mosaic law, Mosaic covenant, has not been done away with. Let's look at just a sample of these. Again, we can only look at a sample. of. If we tried to read all of them, we'd be here for another hour. The best way that you can read 
The rest of them is just in your own regular reading through the scripture. Amos was one of the few prophets to the northern kingdom, but he talks about in Israel permanently possessing the land of promise in a future day. I will also plant them on their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Israel dwells in the land in peace and with agricultural prosperity, just as promised in the Mosaic Covenant. Ezekiel 34, they will no longer be a prey to the nations. The beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. I will call showers to come down their season, and those are real rain showers that produce the crops. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit. The earth will yield its increase. They will be secure on their land. You hear that language from directly from the Mosaic Covenant? This is all talking about a future restoration of the nation of Israel, what we would today call the Millennial Kingdom. Jerusalem will be the center of worship for all the nations of the world. Isaiah 2, it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord, he's talking about the temple, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. You see how that fits with God's purpose of Israel being the witness nation so that the other nations would recognize that theirs is the true God? Many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Get this. Worship will include sacrifices and offerings made by the descendants of Levi, as well as observance of the feast commanded in the Mosaic law. Now, I don't have one reference up here that I should have included. This is in Jeremiah 33, 17, and 18. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of house of, house of Israel. That's the Davidic covenant. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. We have a couple of references to uh, these sacrifices being offered in the temple in the latter prophets. Isaiah 56. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant. These are other nations that are coming under the Mosaic Covenant at this point. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Being as the, the Levitical priesthood and system of worship are so intimately tied into the Mosaic Covenant, more so than who sits on the throne necessarily, because that would be subsequent. Is that part of the criticism? Is you have a new priesthood and the Kelsenekian priesthood, or the Levites also prefer the um, Ezekiel's temple has uh, Zadok's line? So you have That's a, right. You have a different high priest, but a a so, I mean, I, th I think part of the issue is you've got to recognize that Hebrews is in a very different context than this future millennial kingdom. He's trying to convince the guys in Hebrews, no, Christ is not from the line of Levi, but his is a very different kind of priesthood. It's not on earth, it's in heaven. It's in the tabernacle that's in heaven. And 
he's the ultimate high priest. So you can't, uh, his sacrifice does more than what a priestly sacrifice did. His cleansed the conscience and not just dealt with temporal cleansing of the flesh. So I don't think he's even arguing against offering earthly sacrifices through the appropriate priestly line at that point. But he's saying you can't forsake the ultimate high priest. And that's what they were in the danger of doing. When you get here, now one of the things that the latter prophets doesn't do is designate a high priest. I think Christ fills that role because he becomes priest and king when he's back on the earth. But you still have uh, observance of these kind of sacrifices and of the feast um, that all goes back to the law. It is indeed, yes. The, all the covenants ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Now, certainly the Abrahamic covenant has already, part of it's already been fulfilled. God's blessed Abraham. He's multiplied him into this great nation. But ultimately, all the covenants come together into fruition in the millennial kingdom. That's when the new covenant kicks in for Israel. And I think the way you said it is exactly right. The new covenant is really the enablement by which the Mosaic covenant is ultimately fulfilled. So in, in Hebrews, when you mentioned um, that Jesus is part of a better covenant, that's, that's in contrast to going back as if Jesus never existed. It's not saying it's better than the Mosaic covenant in the end. That's, what I'm saying is yes. the Mosaic covenant before, but not the fulfillment of it in the so that's what I would say. And again, you have to look at the argument in Hebrews 8 itself. The, what the author is saying is, even in the Old Testament, a new covenant was anticipated. And he's making the argument that Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant. And, and he even quotes Jeremiah 31 there. So what he's trying to do there, I don't think, I don't think he's trying to say, look, you don't have to worry about the law anymore. Just follow Christ. I think he's saying <clears throat> you can't forsake Christ. He's the mediator of this new covenant. And if you forsake him and you go back as if he's never come, you're in big trouble. I mean, you look at those warning passages and, and just read them kind of in the isolation, but read them together, they're very severe. Mm -hmm. I hope to teach Hebrews in the near future, probably after we do an Old Testament survey. But it's a really fascinating book, and it... I just think it, uh, I think you have to recognize that it's a very different context and, and the people that it's addressed to than this millennial kingdom context is. Okay, I think this is one of the last ones. Zechariah 14, it will come about that any who are last of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, what's the context there? You know, during the tribulation period, you are going to have, especially towards, well, That'd be at the end of the millennial kingdom. But even during the tribulation period, you're going to have other nations that rise up against the nation of Israel. Any of the, who are left of all those nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So I think the implication there is it's a worldwide reign by Messiah, by the son of David, from the city of Jerusalem, and all the nations will come and be part of that at certain times of the year, certain feasts. Finally, the glory of God will dwell upon the earth and among his people as it did in the tabernacle first in the Old Testament and then in Solomon's temple. This is from Ezekiel 43, and this is in the section of 40 through 48 that anticipates the future rebuilding of the temple that spells out the sons of Zadok who are descended from Phinehas, and we'll look at that more when we get to the priestly covenant. Ministering in that temple, you've got the land allotments for the nation of Israel. Uh, 40 through 48 is a great section that speaks about the restoration of the nation. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. Behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house, filled his house, the temple, like it did when Solomon finished building it. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. That's God speaking. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Okay, I got time. So, <clears throat> this is from uh, an author named Paul Benware, who I really like. He's uh, got old survey of the Old Testament and a survey of the New Testament I would highly recommend to you. He's also written a book called Understanding End Times Prophecy that's very helpful on eschatology. But this is a chart in his book, and I'm going to make just a few corrections to it, and I'm going to try to explain to you why. So let's look down here. We've already talked about this some, but he, he's really kind of just tracing the progress of redemption and of the leadership here. Got the formation of Israel as a nation. You have a theocracy, um, you know, under Mo Moses and Joshua. Ultimately, you have a monarchy. You have exile because of their disobedience. You have uh, restoration. You have an age in which Israel has been temporarily set aside until the fullness of the Gentiles comes into the church. And then you have the kingdom. You have these covenants listed up here, promises made in the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant be the means by which those promises are fulfilled. Now, he, he says there's a Palestinian covenant, and other people do this too, because of a verse that starts Deuteronomy chapter 29. At least it does in our English Bibles. And here's what that verse says. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horab, or at Mount Sinai. And people take that, because it starts chapter 29 in our English Bibles, and, and say that what follows in 29 is a separate covenant, a covenant with regard to the land called the Palestinian covenant. I disagree with that. Uh, 
Deuteronomy 29.1 in the Hebrew Bible is actually the last verse in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And instead of looking forward, it's looking back to what Moses has just exposited for 28 chapters. So I would say it's the conclusion of the uh, Deuteronomic covenant rather than a separate Palestinian covenant. Now you'll see there there's also the priestly covenant in Numbers, 24, or Numbers 25, which he doesn't even list as one of the covenants. So that would be another correction I would make. And you notice down here also he shows formation of the nation of Israel, patriarchs, Moses, and Joshua. And he goes from there to kings. He repeats that same one here. I think he's leaving out the period of the judges uh, and of the priest as meteors for God in between. Four of the six covenants that God makes with the nation of Israel are in the Pentateuch in the first five books. That would be Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly, and what we're calling the Deuteronomic Covenant. The Vedic Covenant comes later. The New Covenant comes after that. But notice here also, he shows these covenants continuing into the kingdom. That is, um, well, what he would call the Palestinian Covenant, but certainly the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant extending into the, the kingdom here, the Millennial Kingdom. But he stops the Mosaic Law Code at the cross. Why? It's because the New Testament really emphasizes the fact that we as the church are not under the law. And that's why he stops it there. But the fact is that the Mosaic Law Code continues on into the kingdom, just as those other uh, covenants do. And I hope that the references that we just read make that really clear. Yes. Well, didn't Jesus say that he did not come to abolish the law? To, yes. To fulfill it? That's right. So wouldn't your take on this make more sense? Well, he, he did say that. And when you're reading in the gospel accounts where that comes from, the law is still in force with that there. I don't think Benware would disagree with that part. But he would say that once you get to the cross and once you have Christ dying for sin, then the, the law is done away with. And it is, in a sense, for us. So I, I wouldn't have any problem with, you know, the law not being, we're not under the law here in the church age. But when he stops it and doesn't bring it into the kingdom age, that to me is where he makes his mistake. Because not only does <clears throat> the latter prophets make that really clear, uh, and those references that we read this morning show that. I know I've read you this before, but I, I want to read it one more time and we'll close with this. This is anticipated all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Um, so the first part of 30 is talking about how when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord and obey him with all your heart and soul. Uh, he goes on to say that he'll restore them from captivity. He'll bring them back to the land. Um, the Lord God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. That's what happens in the new covenant. It's that there's a heart change and the law is written on their hearts. And then verse 8 is the kicker. 
So I, I say if you read Deuteronomy 31 through 7, it's clear that that's not yet happened in the life of the nation of Israel. Certainly they've at different points in time come back into the land, but not according to the way that the prophets say that they will. But verse 8 says, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. He's talking about the law that he has just given them again at Sinai. So based on that and based on what the latter prophets say and the way the nature of that millennial kingdom, I think clearly the law is in effect in that period of time. And to me it is logical, right? I mean, I understand that there are certain aspects of the law that stopped at the cross for us as believers today. But for the nation of Israel, uh, they still try to keep the law today. They still try to keep Sabbath. Uh, they can't keep the law because the temple's been done away with. But that's all changes in the millennial kingdom. And, and God's law will finally be kept the way he wanted them to from the very beginning. Okay, we're going to have a different uh, service, obviously, next Sunday. We'll just meet for one hour, and I'll be preaching that message. So the following week, we'll take up the priestly covenant in Numbers chapter 25, and um, look forward to resuming our study then. I really enjoy singing Christmas carols at this time of year, and you guys have done a great job with that. We'll do some more of that next Sunday, and the message will be really trying to focus in on what the expectation was during the time that they were looking for Christ to come. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we recognize that you're the one who designed this plan of redemption even before the world was made. And you first called to Abraham, you gave him these promises, you multiplied and fulfilled your word to him. You created this great nation of Israel and um, led her through the Old Testament times of, our, of the scriptures. You disciplined her as she needed it. You blessed her when she was obedient. You also promised her restoration after she was kicked out of the land. And we recognize that the, the nation exists today and and the, the people exist in the land, but in unbelief, unbelief in Christ as their Messiah. We know him as the Messiah. Um, that's the, the heart of the gospel. And we, as believers in the church age, get the benefits of the new covenant uh, even before Israel does. But we know there's a time coming when Christ will return Israel will be brought through great tribulation, but ultimately regenerated as a people. And as the New Covenant says, your law will then be written on her hearts, and her inclination will be to obey and to worship rather than to, to, to disobey and rebel. So we praise you for this plan. We praise you for Christ who came uh, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem both those who are under the law and us as Gentiles. And I just pray that during this season that these truths would fill our minds and that we would live lives of gratitude for that which Christ has done. I pray tonight as we go to see the Duvalls that they would be encouraged and that we would um, encourage each other even as we sing these great truths together tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.